Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I am your host, Francesco Colosimo. And I'm your co-host, Elizabeth Muller. And we are here with Mega Rao. Thanks for being here, Mega. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm very excited for this podcast episode. We're excited to have you. So tell us, tell us about your research. What are you doing here at Western? Right, so I'm a fourth year PhD candidate within the Integrative Biosciences program here at, within the Faculty of Health Sciences, um, but specifically in the School of Kinesiology. That's amazing. So you're in the School of Kinesio Kinesiology, so tell us a little bit about your research. Yeah, so my research is actually quite different from uh, the faculty and what we do there. Um, I'm more so interested in clinical care and I look at um, interfacility transfer or retrotransfer of neonatal patients uh, following birth within uh, intensive care settings and between um, other levels of care. So how they're being transported, what the experiences and perspectives of healthcare professionals and parent caregivers are, and how uh, we look at child and family centered care approaches within a provincial model that is currently in place in Ontario. So you used a couple of words there. I'm just wondering if we could unpack that a bit. Uh, neonatal and intertransfer, I think I heard. So just wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about what those are. Yeah, so neonates are those that are newly born. Um, we look at acutely ill infants or preterm infants. So those who are just within, um, just being born basically and what happens when they require intensive care following birth for a myriad of different reasons but um, oftentimes there are different uh, ways uh, in which we need to transport them between facilities um, and I think the second portion of your question was interfacility transport. Yes that's it. Um, so that involves transporting infants between intensive care and lower levels of care. And that could be for reasons such as regionalization. So transporting a baby closer to their family um, community or going to a different uh, institution for specialized care um, and those kinds of transitions. Right, right. So, what, you know, at what point is it decided where this transfer happens? Because um, you mentioned, you know, they maybe go from intensive care to hopefully a less, you know, serious type of care. So when you, you know, in the process of care, does this really happen? That's a great question. And we're just learning about this now, but there's so many different reasons for why we have to transport infants. And I think the number one reason for why that's happening is because of the level or the number of infants that are surviving prematurity. And so they're born earlier and earlier. And because of pharmaceutical advancements and technological advancements, we're able to have a lot more babies being born. But what that means is that there's a a greater number of babies that required more specialized care. And so when that happens, they need to be transported to other facilities or there needs to be room made in the intensive care unit. So as soon as a baby is stabilized, they're able to be transferred to a regional center that's closer to home. Um, and it allows for a bed to be open for a new baby. And, you know, just thinking about um, the, the transfer piece, how, do, how is that sort of coordinated? So somebody's, you know, coming into intensive care, getting some treatment, um, hopefully getting better and stabilized. So how is that kind of coordinated across the care team and sort of continuation of services after a patient leaves intensive care? Um, so I think it cut out just a little bit, but I think you're asking me what procedural aspects or logistics mm -hmm. are involved? Yeah. Okay, so uh, basically you have uh, an infant in a NICU and it might be, um, 
they might have had a complication during birth. And then once they've gotten to a point where it's stabilized um, and in need of a transport, the lead physician or a neonatologist will arrange for that. Um, and oftentimes people won't know about this happening until the very last minute. So that might be like a couple hours before, 24 hours before. Um, and oftentimes parents will be uh, perfectly fine the first day and the next day they'll find out that their baby is being transferred. Um, and so it's quite rapid. It changes very quickly and you sometimes aren't aware. Um, and that's a part of our research that we're hoping to explore a little bit more to understand how that happens and how the coordination of care is um, undertaken and what clinical handover, which involves the administration, the logistical aspects, um, and the actual moving of the baby is conducted within. Yeah, so this is really, really interesting. And it sounds like there's, you know, a lot of stakeholders in, in this process. There's obviously the, you know, the, the neonatal patient themselves, there's the parents, there's the physicians. Um, so are you speaking to and consulting all of these groups for your research? Uh, that's what we really hope to do. Um, we are in phase one, which is talking to um, subject matter experts. So we're looking at academics, physicians, um, council leaders that are involved within this community across Ontario. Um, and we're hoping to include uh, every person who might have been involved in this. So that could be physicians, it could be nurses, it could be respiratory therapists. We're learning that occupational therapists are very involved in this process, as well as child life specialists. So trying to understand an understudied uh, phenomenon is what we're hoping to do to create uh, an explanatory theory to better facilitate this process within Ontario. And you mentioned a term um, new to me, child life specialist. So what, uh, can you tell us a bit about what that role is and, and what a child life specialist might do? Yeah, so I uh, cannot speak to what the CLS uh, people do within Ontario, but um, they are involved in decision-making. They help uh, children cope with the reality of their um, hospitalization or the families. Um, and I think that's all I can pretty much say to that effect because I'm not entirely uh, sure to what extent their roles uh, extend to. Mm -hmm. Right. And no, but that brings up an, an interesting kind of dynamic of, you know, you have the specialists that you just mentioned, but there's occupational therapists and, and some of the other, you know, healthcare practitioners that you mentioned. Um, mm -hmm. And it's okay if you're not, but are you aware of how these kind of groups and, and specialists communicate in like an interdisciplinary fashion? Like how, how is care coordinated for the same patient amongst, you know, these great specialists? That's a great question. One that we're slowly realizing is a lot more complicated than we thought. It's uh, it's kind of like a nexus of communication. There's so many different people involved in the process. And what we're learning is these types of communications are very siloed between the types of professions that are involved in such an interdisciplinary um, event. And so we're learning that relationships and relational understandings of logistics and how we operationalize this process is understudied and we don't under we don't know what that's like. Um, and so that's what we hope to learn about a little bit more and uh, further extend the literature, I guess. And do you um, do you are you studying is this specific to hospitals in London or Ontario or how big are we how big are we talking? Yeah, so we follow uh, an, a provincial model for this type of transfer. And so our study is within the context of Ontario. 
Um, that could be all hospitals across the different levels, but we're also open to um, different nurseries, specialized care clinics, and those kinds of things, because we're taking a very broad approach, given that this is a grounded theory methodology. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're hoping to include as many perspectives um, to honor those and to shed light on those and to show how important they are in the grand scheme of things and how we can help help support healthcare professionals and parent caregivers in a more effective manner. And grounded theory is about building a theory, helping to explain a process, uh, about helping to contribute to theory generation. Is, is that, did I kind of get that right? It's a qualitative methodology. Yes, absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head there. That's exactly what we hope to do. And by uh, allowing or inviting several different types of participants from subject matter experts to nurses, to respiratory therapists, to hopefully pilots, um, we hope to really understand what this process is like from the multiple perspectives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, this is so, so interesting. And I think it's really important and, and cool that you're making an attempt you know, to reach all of these groups. And I kind of, if, if, you know, if you have that insight, would like to unpack the parent perspective. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, I think it's, you know, it's tiny, tiny bit more obvious again, from a healthcare practitioner, but what are you, you know, looking to gather from, from the parent perspective? Um, so I think part of that might've cut off. And um, I believe you're asking me what the parent perspectives were um, regarding interfacility transport. Okay, yeah, that's a really great uh, question and one that we really hope to answer during phase three of our study, which considers healthcare or parent caregiver professional experiences together. Um, and I think that is super important to consider because we operate within a child and family centered care approach. And this philosophy honors that parents and healthcare professionals in collaboration work towards facilitating the highest quality of care for all three people, including the patient, the family and the healthcare professional. But when we look at the system in which we operate in, and one that was based off regionalization of care that was developed in the 1990s, um, a lot of things have Change, but a lot have not. And so the funding, the structure, um, and the way the logistics are set up is not conducive to parents. And so what we're seeing is parents aren't able to accompany their babies while they're being transferred. They are not uh, given the funding to be able to participate. Um, and they oftentimes uh, are somewhat excluded from the process in certain ways. So I don't want to overextend that statement. But um, we're learning that there might be different ways in which we can help them cope with this because oftentimes when babies are born prematurely or um, with complications, this transition, so retro transfer, is one of many that they'll have in their illness tra health trajectory. Um, and so having the most positive experience and helping them feel more involved and um, a part of the process and will help them gain a better experience for future transfers. How do you think, um, you know, you mentioned funding, um, and I, I, you know, remember I did some volunteer work at the Hospital for Sick Children's um, several years ago, and, and it's interesting, funding is one piece, but I also think about geography, so not every parent is going to live in the city where perhaps their, their, their little tyke is, is in uh, a NICU, and so, um, you know, how, how can we still engage parents if they're not able to be uh, with their baby? Yeah, that's a fantastic question and one we hope to answer because it's come up quite a few times in our um, literature review and we're learning that parents say with um, twins or triplets, they oftentimes have their infants transferred. Those infants are transferred at different times at, at different 
points of their um, hospitalization. And so we don't know how the parents accompany them, what that process is like, where you have one child in one facility, one in the other, and what that'll mean. Um, and so we're hoping to explore that more and just learn about what parent experiences are when it comes to having their infant um, hospitalized. We hear stories in the news that say that parents uh, oftentimes visit during the daytime um, to see their infant in the hospital and then they go home and then they come back the next day and then they go home. And I can't imagine what that process must be like for them and how scary and um, uncertain that whole process must be. Yeah, there, there's a definite, you know, mental health and or, you know, stress component to this on, on the caregiver end or on the familial end. And it, it's hard to imagine, you know, not knowing the status of, of a loved one, let, let alone, you know, a newborn in, in their kind of process and, and progress in healthcare. And, and what I'm hearing is that, you know, this is a relatively untouched area in research, which is really fantastic. And um, is that because it's a relatively new, you know, medical phenomenon Are premature births, of course, you know, it, there's nothing new, but are we seeing, you know, more premature births in, in recent years? Um, so we definitely are seeing more premature births. I think the, the WHO recorded 10% of all births worldwide are now premature, um, which is a significantly high rate. And so, um, institutions aren't able to cope with the amount of patients being uh, admitted. And so the transport has been uh, used to accommodate this, but it isn't really something that's new. It's been done uh, since the 1990s when regionalization was uh, introduced into the care um, model that we have in Ontario. Um, but what the difference is, is that, and what we're learning from a few of our experts, is that the system is effective. So we are able to transport babies. They have high survival rates uh, and it looks good. But when you dig deeper, you're realizing that parent caregivers are really suffering on the other aspect or on the other side of this. And so we're thinking, okay, this, this at face value works well, the system works, it's funded, it's there's nothing wrong, but when you look at the psychological aspects of parents and what they have to deal with and um, having a baby transition several times within the first year of their life, there might be more opportunities to help them and to have a more child and family centered care approach to this. And it sounds obvious, but you know, when I think about child and family centered care, really what you're saying there is you're getting a care that puts the, the family and child's needs at the, at the center and tries to really meet a, a family unit where they're at, whether that's geographically, financially, socially. Am I missing anything there? No, I think that sounds great. And I think the addition that I would add to that is we hope to include healthcare professional perspectives. Mm -hmm. We know yes. that they're overworked. We know that they must um, they must be dealing with a whole bunch of stress at a very high level, considering how rapidly transfer occurs in addition to their day-to-day -day, um, normal tasks of clinical care. And so we're wondering if there might be a way to have parents more included, um, but in a way that is respectful of the healthcare professional uh, workload. Right. And, and, you know, I'm thinking about what you said about, you know, capacity and how you know, they, they can't really accommodate maybe some of these premature births. And, and uh, I, I know that you've worked at sick kids in the past, and, and obviously, they have the capacity. Um, is this 
more of an issue in you know maybe less populated areas or, or rural Canada like have you studied a difference in in these types of areas um so I haven't looked at rural versus urban we're very early on in the stage and we're hoping things like that come up within our codes as we develop them um, but it depends on what kinds of participants we have um participants basically signing up. Um, and so we don't know what that experience is like for those people. And obviously they must be very unique given that they're very, very far from Toronto in some instances. So how does that affect their experience? And are they present or available to be close by during transport? And how does that affect their overall hospitalized experience? So those are all really great questions and ones I don't really have answers to yet. And so where are you at in the study? Are you, are you kind of a literature review? Or are you starting to collect data? Mm -hmm. um, so we've completed our scoping review and we're just in the process of submitting to a journal and we've started data collection actually today um, with a subject matter expert. Yeah, so it's been a big day. Um, and we have had a great two hour session learning about what the current climate of it is given COVID and how this is potentially going to affect data collection because when we first uh, created this project, it was within the context of not a pandemic, it was completely different. And now we're seeing that after 20 years of care that has been pretty standardized, um, things have really changed because of COVID and we don't know what that's like and our subject matter experts have not been able to shed light on that yet. So that's definitely an aspect of this that we're really hoping to explore in a, in a deeper way. Yeah, you know, I didn't even think about the whole COVID aspect of this. So, um, you know, it, do you think it's possible that, you know, the pandemic has a, almost like a secondary effect, especially for the parental group? Um, like, is that something that you think you'll see maybe an increased stress or, or, you know, the fact that, you know, there are hospital restrictions and, you know, access to certain areas? And um, is, is that something that you're considering in your study as well, apart from, you know, uh, communication with these certain groups? Absolutely. I definitely agree. Just learning about um, how Sick Kids is operating now. Um, I'm wondering how parents accompany or are involved in the process at all, because now we have a limit of one parent um, per patient or sometimes two. I'm not sure what the current exact uh, policy is, but because of how COVID has been going, um, it's very interesting to think about if parents can be involved in this process and if they are, how are they involved and is their likelihood of being um transported with the child even less likely than it was before. Yeah, especially, you know, with visiting restrictions, it's true that the, uh, you know, some hospitals say, you know, one essential caregiver, some hospitals are saying none at all. Um, and then of course, just, you know, getting time off work adds to that layer of complication as well. Right, I absolutely agree. We're very hopeful that we'll get some great insights and really have a deep story to tell about the experiences and the perspectives of both healthcare professionals and parent caregivers. And hopefully there might be some opportunity even within the context of a pandemic of how collaboration and communication can take place um, in a way that can harmonize the process so that parents aren't so dislocated when they have their baby transported from one team to a completely different team where they don't know where the healthcare professionals are. They don't know how many are going to be attending to their baby. And they're kind of in a, in a limbo of what's going to happen Happen, how is it going to happen and where is my baby basically what's going to what's going to be the outcome of this so lots to think about yeah yeah so you know we're, we're talking because it's such a, a new area of, of study we're talking 
you know, a lot of future kind of types of oriented thinking, you know, how we can improve on the process and, and, you know, maybe things that we can do to formulate interdisciplinary communication and, and how to, you know, ease the comfort for parents. So um, I was wondering if you can go into a little bit more detail about what the exact process is right now um, for, for, you know, a baby or, or an infant, sorry, you know, going through this treatment process. So what exactly happens now so that we can improve upon it later? Yeah, I think that's a great question and one that I can't fully understand um, because we have not had that um, exposure to healthcare professionals. Our subject matter experts are ones that have not seen what the current status of things are. And so we are unsure, um, but we do know that not only are neonates being transported now, but we also have patients that are adults being transported at a higher rate because of how COVID is being um how COVID is playing out basically. Um, and so we, we see higher levels of transport in general. Um, and in terms of how they're facilitated or what the logistical steps are, um, we can't really speak to that just yet because we haven't had that insight. Yeah, so I'm just thinking ahead here now, if, if I scope the lens of, so no, this is very, very interesting. So it's almost as if you are trying to, you know, along with some healthcare practitioners figure out what, what the process is now, because maybe the process isn't 100% formalized, and then improve that process, you know, um, going forward. So, you know, if you had to really say what the end goal is um, for this type of research, wh what are you hoping to, you know, supplement or kind of accomplish with this research? Are you trying to formalize a process um, and, and, and those sort of things. So what are you hoping to, I guess, accomplish with an end goal for this? Yeah, that's a great question. And as for the PhD dissertation, the aspects that we're hoping to look for is creating more concrete understanding of relationships and relational understandings of how the transfer process is um, currently being conducted. We know that for the past 20 years, it's followed the same kind of procedure um, in which a neonatologist or a pediatrician uh, initiates the transfer and then the nurses uh, facilitate the actual preparation of the infant, the stabilization and everything that has to do with that checklist that they go through. Um, and then the transport team basically takes the infant, transports it to the next facility and there's clinical handover in which um, some or all responsibility over the, the medical care is being transferred to the receiving end. Um, and so we hope to understand that process a little more deeply and we hope to see um, what aspects of that are stressful, what work well, how, um, how COVID is affecting this and what kinds of interprofessional um, people are involved in this because we're learning more and more every day that there's so many different types of professionals involved and we're wondering how does that affect the parents and um, how can we better the process to affect parents in a more positive way and how can we have them be involved with um, transfer decision making and all of those things a little bit more. And you brought up an interesting term, um, you know, relational um, and relational work. And could, could you just explain a little bit about what that is in the context of the transfer? Yeah, so there's so many different types of people involved in transfer. And so when we think about clinical care, a lot of these different professions are very siloed in their understanding. So as a parent, you might have a baby that's born within the NICU and you build a really great relationship with the nurse and the team that takes care of your infant there. And uh, you are thinking, okay, this is a great 
uh, place to be. My baby is going to be um, taken care of and we will be sent home. But then the next day you find out that your baby is being transferred to uh, a lower level of care because they are stable enough to be transferred and there are more critical infants that require that bed. And so when we think about the relationship um, from a parent's perspective, we don't really see how they're connected because you trust your healthcare professional team, but they don't know who's on the receiving end. Um, and so you are basically going from one one group that you really have a great relationship to another one that you have no idea what's what it's going to be like. And then you think about the amount of care that your baby will have. So in the NICU, you might have um, one nurse for every two or three babies. But in um, a secondary level facility, you might have one or two nurses for 10 babies. And so this whole relational aspect and trust building is uh, important amongst all the professions that the parents basically interact with. And so we're hoping to understand what that's like for them. If that answers your question. That's a beautiful answer, absolutely. Yeah, it's very relational work for sure. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. And this, this topic in general is, is pretty unique. And uh, so Mega, what really got you into, you know, studying this topic? What led you, you know, to this interest? Yeah, um, so my work at SickKids as a PhD research student over the past two years has really structured where I would like to study and what I would like to study and how I would like to study it. Um, I work in a neonatal pain and implementation science lab um, in the Child Health Evaluative Sciences program. And, um, that's where I first found a love of the population. I found a love of understanding healthcare professionals and also a curiosity for where parents are situated within the context of clinical care, especially at such a vulnerable um, time, which is birth. And so these babies have so much that they're dealing with and they have a great quality of care provided in Ontario by some incredible physicians and teams of care. Um, but we're wondering how do parents navigate this and how do healthcare professionals navigate this high level of stress and the environment that's rapidly changing and what ways um, can we understand both their perspectives in a way that relate to each other? Because we oftentimes see studies that look at one or the other or one with uh, a supplemental quantitative study or survey that's, that adds context. But we're looking to build a story and understand um, what this phenomenon is like. And so my work at Sick Kids has really um, influenced that quite heavily. Yeah, no, it, it's it's so amazing that you have, you know, um, a connection with Sick Kids and how that has, you know, supplemented and then led to your interest because, um, you know, obviously I, I don't even know a lot about the topic, but I know Sick Kids is, is an industry leader in, in this, you know, area of research. So um, that's, I think that's so, so interesting. And, um, you know, we're just about out of time here and, and thank you so much for, for coming on. Um, and if anyone wants to learn about your research, is there any website or social media account that they can go to or, or any email that they can reach you at? Absolutely. So if you are interested in participating or would just like to learn more or follow along with my PhD journey, I have an academic Instagram called The Baby Researcher. Um, feel free to hit me up there. I would love to connect and communicate. And yeah, that's about it. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on the show. This has been Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Francesco Colosimo my co-host was Elizabeth Moeller. We've been speaking with Mega Rao, and this episode was produced by Ariel Frame. 
If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca. We're on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts can be uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great night.